Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great streets of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the roots and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirits and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I want everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things say, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So many thanks to uh, our faithful band of musicians and Martin for leading us. In fact, everybody who's played a part in setting us up this morning. Uh, we're very grateful for all the service that's rendered here. Um, you may have uh, heard that I was 60 recently, and uh, it is, I'm sorry to say, true, and I hear you cry, how could you possibly be 60? <laughs> but it's true, I'm afraid. And um, uh, when Nigel asked me to preach recently, he said, well, you can preach on whatever you like. So uh, I had to think about that, and I, my, uh, I was drawn back to the latter end of the book of Revelation. And uh, I, was, I was drawn to this particular passage because having reached the grand old age of 60, two of my very good friends uh, died in recent months. Simon Forshaw, who I'd known for oh, 30 years, um, died recently in, in Bournemouth. And, um, and then my very good friend, uh, John Tilson, who I've known for nearly 40 years, died both of, of cancer and both died in faith, um, their faith being strengthened actually towards the end of their lives. And uh, I was very struck by that. And I was thinking that the tenor of our lives, the tenor of my life at, at the very least, is taken up with things that I can see and feel and hear around me for pretty much all the time and I don't look forward to the future as much as I should do and it made me think well what would it be like if you could see into the future those science fiction films you know um, what, what would it be really like if you could see into the future and my sense is it would be quite a mixed bag so if you could see the future of the stock market for example and you were canny he found this little IT company whose shares were worth about 20p. In 10 years, they're worth about £5. That'd be worth an investment, worth a punt, wouldn't it? So you could see that into the future. There'd be some good things about seeing into the future. There'd also be some pretty grim things about seeing into the future. So you, you might see the, the death or serious illness of your friends and family. And you'd be able to see that. So... You can see a science fiction script kind of coming on there, Philip K. Dick or something like that. Anyway, um, so I was drawn to this passage because this passage um, is helpful, although it's sometimes quite difficult to understand the symbolism and the images that are used in the book of Revelation. It helps us focus on God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is that he sets out for us here what the future is going to look like for the people of God. And as we see into the future, we just get a little glimpse. The veil is drawn aside for a moment and we're just brought into that final vision that John has in this book of what the future is going to be like for the people of God. So you know that uh, the Bible story lays out salvation history very clearly for us to look at. Um, and uh, 
God bringing uh, his chosen people to his home in a new heaven and a new earth is just the end of this great plan of salvation. So when God created the world, it was good in Genesis. But then sin, chapter 3 of Genesis, sin entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And then the, the story of the Old Testament, largely one of failure of God's people to keep God's law. And so the Lord Jesus comes into the world to live a perfect life uh, and to die on the cross to overcome the power of sin in the world. And the cross satisfies God's wrath upon sin. So that if you believe and trust in him, you can be free and you can look forward to a future which we're going to look at in more detail in a moment or two, you can look forward to a future which is with God. And uh, so this is just the end, if you like. Chapters 21 and 22 here are the end of the story. And the Lord Jesus uh, is pictured waiting for the number of the chosen people of God to be completed. Just a quick word about um, the, uh, uh, the context of the book. Uh, Martin very helpfully just outlined that for a moment or two, so I'll just build on that for, uh, for a second. By the time this book is written, it's coming towards the end of the first century, so around 90 AD, something like that. And John is probably in exile on the island of Patmos. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, if I was going to be exiled anywhere, a Greek island might be quite a decent place to be exiled. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Um, whether or not he's in prison is another issue. But having survived the persecution of Nero, remember Peter Ustinov in that great film from the past? Uh, Nero was um, a, an unpleasant man, I think it would be safe to say. And the emperor that came after him uh, was Domitian. And he wasn't quite as unpleasant as Nero, but he persecuted the Christians. Not quite as badly as Nero, but he still persecuted the Christians. And his favourite instrument of torture and persecution was exile. So John is exiled to this little island of Patmos. Now, we may be able to see a, a map. Now, if, you could, if somebody could just close it, Dave, if you could close that, and maybe Joe, if you could close that just for a second... If you've, if you've been on holiday to Turkey, you'll know it's very hot in Turkey. Uh, this is the western coast of Turkey. We went once to, on holiday to Turkey. <laughs> it was boiling. <laughs> and uh, up towards the top there where it says Pergamum, we, uh, I reckon that's fairly near the town of Bodrum now. But anyway, we were up there and it was about 40 degrees every day. So you staggered out in the mornings. <laughs> And then just, you had to stay in in the afternoon. It was too hot. But anyway, um, now John is down here, Patmos. Uh, so he's on one of these islands that's just off the western coast of Turkey. And um, in fact, when we looked out from our holiday um, house, you could see some of these islands off the coast. So I feel as though I've been there. <laughs> Not quite, maybe. But anyway, John wrote this letter, because it's a letter, um, to the seven churches which are named there, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and so on. And um, it's primarily to those churches who are being persecuted by Domitian. And uh, he's there on the island of Patmos, and his letter 
would have been carried by boat across to those to those uh, towns and cities. And uh, the purpose of the book is to encourage God's people in the time of persecution. And they were suffering loss of property, uh, loss of um, employment. Some of their leaders were being put to death, or like John, being put out to exile in Patmos. So the future for them looked pretty grim and bleak. And John writes this letter. He sets out these seven visions that God gives him in order to encourage the people of God and he's pointing them towards chapters 21 and 22. We won't have time to deal with the whole of that passage today, but go home and read chapters 21 and 22. They are of one piece, where he describes the new heaven, the new heavenly Jerusalem, coming down where God is going to be the ruler of his people. So, uh, we don't think enough about these things. Um, but I believe that when we do, our perspective as Christians is enhanced and our faith is strengthened. So let's get into the passage. And I've helpfully set out the... Um, oh, brilliant. Even better. They're coming up one at a time. I didn't have the skills to do that on PowerPoint, but somebody has. Thank you, Daniel. Or Joel, or whoever did that. <laughs> so um, what we're going to be concentrating on primarily is verses 3 to 5. Primarily because um, I looked at verses 1 and 2, but they're still beyond my grasp. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll concentrate on 3 to 5. So we've got this river of the water of life coming down uh, from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's a pretty strange picture, this heavenly city coming down. There's a river of life coming down the centre of the city, which you could picture. Most cities are built around rivers. And there's this tree either side of the river... Um, it's fruit and it's tree, it's leaves are for the healing of the nations. I'll leave that to scholars and people who are brighter than me. But we're going to end up with verse 3. This is what life is going to be like in that city. There shall no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They shall see his face, his name will be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night, and they shall have... They shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of a sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So first thing, the rule of God will be complete in verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. First thing that's going to be different about heaven is that the curse will be gone. This will, st this will strike a note uh, of anybody here who goes to work every day. Do you, do you find work frustrating? It's frustrating enough being at home raising children and you know, doing the washing and the ironing and the cleaning and so on. I won't go into that. But for those who just go to work every day, it's a frustrating world, isn't it? The world of work. And, and that's because work was cursed in Genesis there are lots of linkages between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. We're only going to just pick up on one or two. But if you do have a Bible, look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And uh, this is the curse that God gives to the serpent, Satan, because the, uh, the serpent has deceived Eve. And he, he places this curse on, uh, on the serpent, on Satan. 
And towards the end, um, verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. The world of work is cursed, not only for the gardener and the farmer, but the world of work. Because sin has entered into the world, it's entered into the very fabric of the cosmos, as it were. And God's ultimate purpose is to remove that curse from the universe. And so life will no longer be frustrating. Uh, I, could, I would just add here, this is something that's right up to date. There's been a lot of um, concentration in the media recently about how men behave in the world, the male gender, how men behave in the world, that we live in a, a male-dominated world. You think about Genesis chapter 3 and the curse that's placed, that's placed upon Eve and think about how women are subject to men in a very ungodly way sometimes. And you men, you need to recognise that that curse is placed not only on them but on you. And to find your way towards working towards a way to treat women. It's really important for you. Now, of course, the, the great picture of the curse being lifted is to be found in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. When Lucy goes through the back of the wardrobe and comes into this wintry world where all the trees are covered in snow and it's freezing cold, and then Edmund follows her and he meets the White Witch and he starts to uh, be entranced, really, by the White Witch. And, and the children come through and they start to realise that this world of Narnia is cursed. It's been cursed by the White Witch. And then gradually as you follow the story through, you hear from the various animals, the beavers and so on, that Aslan is coming. And as Aslan starts, he's on the move, and as he starts to make his way towards Narnia, spring starts to set in. And that previous world, where it was always winter but never Christmas, Spring starts to set in, the snow starts to melt, the frost starts to go. It's a bit, I mean, C.S. Lewis got the point, I think. He could see the point, that curse one day is going to be lifted. And it's as though we live in the cursed world of Narnia, where everything's winter and it's never Christmas. That's what life is like now. But it won't be then, the curse will be gone. And then... Under this point, the throne of God is there. Now, we believe that even in this world that's cursed, God is sovereign. That means that God perfects his purpose even in a sinful world. Now, if you understand that, come and see me afterwards. I don't. But I still believe it. Sometimes that's hard to see. But then everyone, every eye will see him as the king of the universe... And there'll be a reign of compassion, justice and joy. We've just, just seen in the last few days, haven't we, how political leaders 
getting into conflict with each other and the leaders that we would so long to have let us down in various ways. I won't name them, you know who they are. (laughs) But it's what people in every nation long for, isn't it? Justice, compassion, and to be able to trust the person who's leading you. That, That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? To live in a world like that. But that's what it's going to be like. Being able to trust your leader implicitly with your whole life. And what we're told in verses 3 and 4 and so on is that a new heaven and a new earth is going to be created in which God's kind rule will be evident. Even to the point at the end of verse 5 where we will reign with him. Staggering, really. (coughs) Let's go on to the second point. Uh, Excellent. God's people will serve him and see him. Verses 3 and 4. Now, the popular picture of heaven is uh, of um, um, you sitting in a a white toga um, on a fluffy (coughs) cloud in a blue sky playing a harp (laughs) that's the popular picture isn't it let me just illustrate this for you this is not a bad book surprised by hope by tom wright i take issue with him over a couple of fairly major things but we won't go into that but he he um he illustrates this popular picture of heaven uh in a very helpful way He comes across this book by, um, it's a bestseller by somebody called Maria Shriver, who's said to be the wife of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I won't say any more comment about that, but she's the wife of Arnold Schwarzenegger and niece of John F. Kennedy. So she's, you know, she's, anyway. And um, she, and the book is called What is Heaven? What's Heaven? The book is aimed at children and has lots of large pictures of fluffy clouds in blue skies. You can see where this is going, can't you? Each page of text has one sentence in extra large type, making the basic message of the book crystal clear. Heaven, says Shriver, is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. I forgot about that. You can talk to the next person on the clouds. <laughs> and uh, at night... You can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And grandma is alive in me. It seems to go off on a bit of a tangent about grandma at this point. Grandma is alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She's watching over us from up there. I want you to know, says the heroine to her great-grandma, that even though you're no longer here, your spirit will always be alive in me. And then he makes his telling point, and he's spot on. He says, this is undoubtedly more or less exactly what millions of people in the Western world have come to believe, to accept as truth and to teach to their children. Have a look at that book afterwards if you want to. So, but I don't think heaven's going to be like that at all. Um, In fact, I'm going to illustrate that in a moment or two. Uh, 
Um, yeah, let's look at it now. Have we got that odd-looking slide? Um, John, the, uh, keep going, keep going, keep going. That one. Now, you probably can't see it very well. This is a famous painting by um, Stan Stanley Spencer. So Stanley Spencer is probably Britain's greatest painter of the 20th century. A rather odd, <laughs> odd little man. Uh, his personal life is a complete disaster. But he was a great painter, and uh, he loved to paint resurrection. He brought up in a Christian family, again, a slightly odd Christian family, but they took the Bible very seriously. And he painted, this is probably his greatest painting. Now, I was going to say I'm breaking the copyright law, but this is being recorded. So um, you can actually go and see this painting at Tate Britain. It's huge. About half the size of that wall, and uh, you can just see some. It's not. It, I took a picture of my with my phone and tried to put it onto a slide. So it doesn't come out wrong. There's some graves over there. There's some uh, kind of tombs here. There's a guy here who's just emerging from a tomb. Uh, there's people over there. There's a. Uh, you can't see it very clearly, but basically Stanley Spencer is painting his family, his friends and his neighbours from the village of Cookham in Berkshire as they emerge from the graves in the graveyard. And uh, it's about the most realistic picture of what's going to happen to Christians that I've ever come across. And I think he stumbled on something here that is quite remarkable. So we're going to go into this in a moment or two. We don't believe that heaven's going to be kind of spiritual and uh, uh, ethereal in some way. It's going to be physical. And Stanley Spencer stumbled on this. And you can see the people, uh, there are one or two people on the end. And they, they, they come out from the tombs and their heads are covered with clods of earth. And um, that's what heaven is going to be like. So, God's, we'll come back to, let's go back to where we were. God's servants are going to serve him. And they're going to serve him in this place. It's pictured in Revelation 21 and 22. But let's see what they're going to be doing. Um, his servants will serve him. Now, I don't really know how we're going to be serving him, but we are going to be serving him. And... Uh, if you go back to chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, there's a hint of what we might be doing. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And the 24 elders, verse 4, and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Verse 6, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Now, be honest with yourself. How often do you feel like praising God? Not often, really. might happen once or twice a day. But it won't be a struggle there. It won't be a struggle to praise God. And um, as I was thinking about our church life, the way we 
come along on a Sunday morning and we sit out in the chairs and we put the sound up and we do various things around the place. Here, even our best service, the things that we do well for the service of God and to please him, it's often tainted, isn't it, by self-regard. Are people watching me? Can they see how holy I am? Can they see how keen I am? Uh, And we make our service of God something that's tainted and sinful. But that's our sinful heart. That's what life is like in this world. And uh, we often think, even at our best times, how's this going to be reflect? How's this going to reflect on me? How will people see me? Will people notice me doing this? It won't be like that in heaven. Worship will be pure. There won't be self-regard. And for the reason I'm going to come on to, we're going to be looking somewhere else. Because verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. And this, as Samuel Rutherford helpfully said, that is going to be what heaven is like. That's what you go to heaven for, to see the Lord Jesus. We were down at South Sea yesterday. And uh, here, of course, the sun was shining and uh, spring had arrived at last. And uh, down at South Sea, on the foreshore there, um, you knew the Isle of Wight was there. But the blanket of fog between you and the Isle of Wight was as thick as anything. You could, you could hear the ships, uh, but you couldn't see them. So I knew the Isle of Wight was there, unless Donald Trump had blown it up or something. <laughs> but I knew it was there, but I couldn't see it. It's a bit like here. So when we think and talk about spiritual things, and when we praise our Saviour, it's like looking through a cracked mirror or a cracked window you can see through but you have to you have to concentrate and you have to focus in between the cracks it's a bit like that but we will see his face in this life everything is seen through a very poor window in very poor light the highlight of our day these days is when we get a facetime message from lana so her mother rings us up and uh, Lana's little face appears on, on uh, her grandmother's phone. And um, we have a great time with Lana. Quite often the light is poor in their house. I need to speak to them about that. <laughs> but the light is often poor. But we, we love it and we can see her little face and she's putting her finger out to close the message so that, you know, the conversation ends, but never mind. And we see her, but it would be lovely to be with her. So much better to be with her. But until we can be with her, that's the FaceTime message. Well, life in this world is a bit like seeing Jesus through a FaceTime message. You'd love to see him, but you can't at the moment. You can kind of see him, but only through the eyes of faith. The great hope of the Christian is to see his saviour. There are lots of passages in the Old Testament uh, where... um, the psalmist and so on, longs to see the face of his saviour. I just want to mention Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 17, right at the very end, when I awake, I will see you. And it's one of the great promises of the scriptures, is that one day we will see God. God in the Old Testament goes out of his way to make it plain that we must not, we cannot see him. 
But one day we will see him. And as Jonathan Edwards said at that time, heaven will be a world of love because there will be no need for faith or hope. So, coming towards the end now. Uh, third point, God's people will be understood and will understand perfectly. This first picture, verse 4, his name shall be on their foreheads. It's a mark of several things. First of all, um, first part of this metaphor is from Exodus chapter 28. Aaron, the high priest, was to wear this golden plate on the front of his forehead like this, and it said, Holy to the Lord. The first picture here that's, that's um, being referred to here is that of consecration. We'll be consecrated to God. We will be reserved for God, as it were. The second picture, is similar kind of, is that of a badge or a mark or a brand, that of ownership by God. You know when you go into hospital, they put this little wristband on your wrist and that's in case you die or you go gaga or whatever and you don't know what your name is anymore. And uh, it's, it's so that whoever comes, comes across to you, yeah, they'll be able to identify you. And if you wake up and you don't know who you are, oh yes. <laughs> so, and the, the third thing is that in the Bible, God's name is often a metaphor for his character. And we will share in the great family <coughs> reputation. So that when you see little ones running around here on a Sunday morning, I see Bertie, for example, I see, oh, Chris and Andy, he's, he's family likeness. And we see each other's children running around. They look like their parents. For some, that's a good thing. For others, no. <laughs> but we, sh we will share God's family likeness in heaven in a way which we don't hear. We look at each other and we see some encouraging signs, but not all, all the time. And then the second part of this particular um, picture here is there shall no longer be any night. They shall have... No longer the need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 60, where the God himself will be the light of his people. And uh, I think it's about our understanding. Because let's face it, as clever as we might be, we don't understand very much about God or salvation in this life. We have a little bit, we understand a bit, but then we'll understand perfectly. And I think we'll realise that actually what we understood here was just a tiny bit. And this present regime is governed, as I say, by faith. We're looking through that cracked window we're, we're, we're not understanding. We know that God is there. We know that his plan of salvation is there. We know that Jesus is our saviour, but we don't know it fully, completely, personally and really because we're not there yet. Salvation, I've come to realise as I've got old, salvation is primarily future. Remember who this letter or these letters, these visions, being written for, Christians in prison, Christians under Nero being sewn into animal carcasses and then torn to pieces by lions. Christians crucified. 
they understood a little, but then they were going to be with Jesus, which was far better. And this present regime is governed by faith. We take things on faith, but there we will understand perfectly. And, as I've said, um, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This idea that somehow heaven is going to be spiritual and ethereal and um, non-corporal, if you like. It's not a Christian idea at all. If you go to any funeral service and the minister says, mentions this phrase, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body... That's a Christian idea. That when we die, fine, we go to be with Christ, which is far better. That much is clear. But one day, we are waiting for one day when we will be resurrected. When, like the inhabitants of Cookham Churchyard, we will, ri- we will rise up from the grave. The sea will give up her dead. And there will be a resurrection to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the Bible promises. And then lastly, very quickly, the Lord Jesus is coming soon. Now this picks up on, um, again, chapter 1, where John, um, setting the vision um, from Patmos, in verse 7, he says, Behold, he's coming with the the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will will mourn over him. And uh, the context here is of the judgment of God, because one day we will all be raised, there will be what the theologians call a general resurrection. That means that everybody who's ever lived will be resurrected to the judgment of God. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. The Lord Jesus will uh, bring that in by a personal return where every eye will see him and there will be a general resurrection to the throne of God where we will be judged by God. The Bible is very clear about that. And in the rest of chapter 22 here, we hear about those who are not going to be saved but they're going to be cast out. And there will be those who are saved, who've had faith in the Lord Jesus. And in a sense, they've already been judged by God because their sins have been judged on the cross. So there's nothing to fear for them. But we will all stand there. And in this chapter, several times... The Lord Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, or I'm coming soon. Verse 7, verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And uh, verse 20, He who testifies to these things, he says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. So the message is, three times in this chapter, the Lord Jesus is coming soon. Now, you may think, Hold on, we've been waiting 2,000 years for this so how can he say I'm coming soon well I don't know the full answer to that question other than to say that God is eternal and even in our own experience a year passes very quickly so when the Lord Jesus says I'm coming soon 
He says at some point in the future, and you're to be ready for it, because soon means soon. It doesn't say in the ne- it doesn't mean the next five minutes, but it means one day. So what does this mean for us now? Now we labour under the regime of faith. We look back on the cross and the resurrection and uh, ascension of Jesus by faith. We look forward to his return and we look forward to that day when we will be resurrected from the dead unless he returns sooner. And we will spend eternity together praising and worshipping our Saviour. So we're to live our lives with that eternal perspective in mind. We're to sit loose to our money and our possessions and our earthly ambitions. We're to unite our ambitions, our wishes and our plans with this eternal perspective. If you get this picture, it will shape how you live your life. For the persecuted churches in Western Turkey at that time, or Asia Minor, the recipients of this book, of this prophecy here, the message was keep going to the end, to death if necessary. And it's a similar message to us. We don't live in that time, but we are to live under the regime of faith, looking forward to that great day when we shall see our Saviour.